Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. In this fairly gender-neutral world, I'm somewhat surprised that nobody is sort of highlighting, well, you know, that's biased against women. But then I started thinking, you know what? When wartime falls and descends, you kind of get back to brass tacks, right? What really matters here and who can we rely on? And it's not the time for fine grade distinctions. It's like, men, you're here up through age 60. Women and children, you know, you don't have to stay, right? They didn't tell them they had to go, but they, they didn't have to stay. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another episode of What We Can't Not Talk About, the podcast of the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture. I'm Dr. Orlandi, and my guest today is our senior fellow and UT professor of sociology, Mark Regneris. Good morning, Mark. Hello, Mariana. Mark, since I already know that you will be back soon for some of your research on attitudes towards transgenderism, I would say that if we continue this trend, we should think about having you as a co-host of the show. <laughs> I've been told I should run my own podcast. I just don't have the desire to do so. Yeah, no, well, you don't need to. You can always come here. You're always welcome. And actually, I'm kidding because I think as a UT professor, you have a lot of many more important things to do, such as delighting us with some very insightful and timely articles as the one that we're going to discuss today. Today, in fact, we're going to talk about your recent piece for Public Discourse, which was published March 2nd. Focus on the way the war in Ukraine highlighted sex differences and also helped us see something relevant about family ties, or at least you helped us see that. And first of all, I want to say that you do not write like a data person because this piece was actually very beautiful. I try. Yeah, it was, uh, I, I don't know. So part, maybe, my guess is maybe that part of the merit comes from the fact that you introduced and closed this piece by quoting a novel, The March. Mm -hmm. You say it's little known and actually had no idea it even existed. So would you tell us more about it and how you came across it? Yeah. How did I come across it? I've been doing some research in Poland and I had read James Michener's novel called Poland, which was a New York Times bestseller back in 1983. I've read that at least twice. It's really good. And But I keep you know, yearning to sort of read history with some kind of color commentary to it. Not a dry history, not just a political history, but sort of a cultural history. So I don't know. I don't remember exactly how I came across it, but there was this. Uh, oh, I know. Uh, I was. I think it's Henrik Sienkiewicz um, had written a trilogy, the most famous of which was the Deluge, about uh, this attack by Sweden on Poland back in the, I want to say fifteen or I think sixteen hundreds. Anyways, uh, somebody had pointed out like, oh. This author had also written kind of a, a pair of books on Poland's time in World War II. One was about the first month, 1939, and then the march was about sort of what happened thereafter, you know, sort of the diaspora of people who got moved internally in Poland, but also those who sort of were, you know, shipped into Soviet prisons and then sort of their what happens to them after that. It's kind of a testimony to sort of not just sort of Poland fought the Soviets and the Nazis, uh, got squeezed from both sides, but also that uh, what happened after that and how does, how does Poland manage to survive? So I guess it was an attempt for you to understand what makes the Polish people who they are today. Yes. Maybe. I mean, they're distinctive in, in a variety of ways. 
more Catholic than average, although that's starting to be suffer from secularization today, especially among the young. Anyways, it, you know, I started reading it and it just it happened to be like the opening sequence was about this fellow, Abel Abramovitz, and his, you know, he and his commanding officer hanging out together as they're being pushed further east by the Nazis and then the, pushed from the east by the Soviets. It takes place near Lvov, which was is now Lviv, Ukraine. Before you know, a lot of people don't know that. Like roughly eighty to hundred miles of the westernmost part of Ukraine was Poland. A good chunk of Lithuania was Poland until mm. uh, either piece of it. Lithuania got sucked up by the Soviets earlier, but the Soviets also took the westernmost part of what is now Ukraine from the Poles and gave them the easternmost part of Germany, which is now like where Vwatswad is, used to be called uh, Breslau, mm. birthplace. So, yeah, so I understand the link with Ukraine came from the place, but I think that there is much more to that. Uh, yes, that, that I digress. That links the stories. No, but like, I mean, I love this digression, but like, it's not just a place. It's, this is the story of a soldier. And right. you are talking about uh, war and yes. male elements in yeah. a war and, and right. the role of women. So when do we get there? So uh, fairly quickly, things start to deteriorate. And so fighting battles turns to, uh, how do I get out of here? And how do I find someplace that's safe? Because the army is basically in disarray at this point. You know, It's not really desertion if there's no functioning army. So he's like, I, I have an uncle who lives in... Is it uncle? Grandfather. I think it was grandfather. Who lives in a manor outside of uh, Lviv. You know, let me get there, right? And he gets there too late. The Bolsheviks had showed up, strung up his uncle and the various people who lived on the manor. And like, that was no go. So anyways, but it struck me as, as the Russian invasion of Ukraine breaks out here a few weeks ago that... There's streams of people, families, mostly women and children, heading southeast, southwest, I'm sorry, from uh, Kiev to Lviv, and from there into Poland. And on the same roads that this, this mm-hmm. fictional character, Abel, is traversing or trying to stay off of as he's making his way to his family, right? So family matters plays this role in the march, and it also has been clearly playing a role from the get-go in the invasion that we're watching in real time. And then you mentioned in the article how the president of Ukraine started to call back the men, right, and call them to arms. And that's yes. starting to be criticized, like, why is he calling back men? But he well, had to say something. He the had weird something thing to say is, about that. it really wasn't criticized by many. I had to look around, like, is anybody saying anything about this? Because it, to me, it made sense. But I thought in this fairly gender-neutral world, I'm somewhat surprised that nobody is sort of highlighting, well, you know, that's biased against women. But then I started thinking, you know what? When wartime falls and descends, you kind of get back to brass tacks, right? What really matters here and who can we rely on? And it's not the time for fine-grade distinctions. It's like, men, you're here up through age 60. Women and children, you know, you don't have to stay, right? They didn't tell them they had to go, but they, they didn't have to stay. So... I just find that fascinating. And people, you know, have tried to read into what I'm saying, like, oh, do you approve of this? Like, I'm not really thinking about whether I approve of it or disapprove of it. It's like, it has happened and it has been 
largely crickets from the media, which I'm not looking for them to jump on it, but like, yeah. you know, it, it signaled that, ah, the need for Ukraine to overcome Russian invaders is the most important thing here. We don't care what kind of policies they yeah. put in around sex or gender. And in fact, it seemed empathetic, compassionate, right? There's these photos that were circulating, fairly popular at the beginning of the conflict. Women taking up guns, women with tears in their eyes in the back of a van with guns. And like, and people are like, this is the worst. Like, how did it come to this, right? And reading this thinking, nobody is censoring themselves anymore. They're just realizing the raw emotion and distress of the idea of sending women into conflict to fight with guns, even though, you know, roughly 10 plus percent of the, the Ukrainian military is comprised of women. So far as I can tell, like, it's mostly men fighting the battles, right? It's definitely mostly men signing up to, uh, in this sort of kind of Ukrainian state militia or whatever yeah. they've got going on. You remind me of a quote. I mean, is Brad Weinstein recently in his podcast said something about, I'm not going to use the exact same words that he used, but he said, if you really want to have a state where you can have gender fluidity and decide among 30 different genders, you need a very, very, that's not exactly what he said, masculine military to defend that kind of place right. and, and yeah. space where you can actually engage in this kind of conversation. Yeah. But you mentioned it, speaking of the difference between men and women, you mentioned the book by Biomeister, Is There Anything Good About Men? So my question would be, is there? Yes, there is. And the whole book is kind of... Uh, it's about sex distinctions and not so much, you know, what's distinctively good about men, but he talks about trade-offs. That's kind of his primary lens through which he understands as an economist or, and mostly a social psychologist. How do you get to equality through trade-offs? Not insisting on sameness, but on recognizing that the strengths of men are usually matched by the weaknesses of women and that the weaknesses of men are matched by the strengths of women. You know, it's, uh, shall I say, complimentary? Yeah, I mean, you can in the, on this show. Uh, <laughs> I give you full permission to say it on this show. I Let me quote you quoting him, and then you write, cultures that understand and capitalize on sex distinctions, Baumeister claims, live longer and better, and most important, they reproduce more. And then you add, hence the judgment of a president, Zelensky in this case, that is better to put a nation's men at risk than its women. Family ties and motivations are a cornerstone of resistance to cultural and national invaders. So how are family ties a motivator is my question to for you. And would they be in today's America? And are there studies on that? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Family ties are motivating insofar as you know, we saw, you know, what are we up to? Almost, was it 2 million? Or it's certainly in excess of a million refugees who have left Ukraine already. I think the population is around 20 or 30 total mostly women and children. I haven't read any stories about this, but I've imagined what is it like to be a Ukrainian male under 60 leaving with mostly women and children? And like people must be scowling at you, wondering what do you, what's the matter with you, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. I haven't heard any stories about that, but I can just imagine the, the awkwardness. You know, Sean Penn is walking along the road towards, uh, between Lviv and Chemish, Poland, and, you know, people don't know that he's Ukrainian. He's probably half embarrassed because all the men are behind him, right? Staying or flowing into it as expats seeking to fight. Mm -hmm. Anyways, so now I forgot your question. 
how family ties are a motivator. Right. So motivating in the sense of uh, you feel duty bound to try to salvage a nation where it's your home. And, but the most important thing is not necessarily the nation, but your family, right? I mean, family ties typically precede allegiance to country. And so President Zelensky says, okay, men up to age 60, stay. Women and children, up to you. So lots of men and women agree it's time to get out. Not all of them, but as much easier to get out at the beginning than it is, like, for example, right now. Because there's, you know, even if I die, I still want my wife and my child to live. And you want your wife to live in no small reason because you, your child needs your wife to live, right? Not absolutely, but relatively speaking, right? We, you know, so there's, there's a sense of men, and I think it happens actually after they reproduce. It certainly happened to me. I remember almost the, the moment when I knew my wife was expecting, I thought, wow, I'm less important now. There's this certain sense of like, I don't, you know, the world can go on without me sometime soon. I am less pivotal, but my child is the most important thing. And my wife is really important because she's essential for him in this case. So uh, these ties are deep. They're elemental. They precede, if you ask me, tribe. And, you know, it doesn't get much more tribal than that, really. Since you studied and continue to study extensively the status of the family in America, that was my follow-up question. So would family be a motivator today in today's America? Not in the sense of like, would it be anthropologically that way, but what are the numbers there? I mean, do we have enough young men that have to take care of their wives or we have a lot of young men who have to take care of their dates? There's nothing like war to kind of remind you of what's elementally important. I don't like war. I hate war. Don't go looking for war. But when it occurs, it brings you back to sort of like what really matters here. But the United States, you know, historically, we were slow to get into wars. And then after the Second World War, we kind of created this military industrial complex that President Eisenhower warned about that kind of keeps fighting wars and profits on them at some, in some low level way. But do we, you know, do we think that like this? Not really, because... The nice thing about the United States is it's separated from most of the world's enemies by two very large bodies of water. You know, we get along with Canada relatively decent and Mexico. We're safe in in many ways, not outside the range of an ICBM, but uh, we don't think so much about like refugee status. It's a foreign concept to think that you could be an internally displaced refugee in the United States or that you need to go for your own safety, right? Just a foreign notion. So we don't really think about it. So it's yeah. hard to answer that question. As a European, I totally understand what you're saying. And of course, I hope that even by the time we air this episode, which should be very soon compared to when we recorded, you know, this war would be over. But back to your piece, you talk about the multi-generational households and you say they're more common in Ukraine than here. What are they? And what's good about them? Well, in the West here, including Europe, certainly the United States, we love our independence. God bless my mother, but she loves her independence and you know, she's not in a hurry to move in with us even though she lives alone, etc. Doing fine. But uh, there, there's something about it like, you know, it's better if she's around us. Better if she's around my 
brother and sister-in-law. You know, it's and so the door is open for her to visit. I would even welcome her to stay at longer periods of time. Not that interested in it, partly because America thrives on independence. I said in the future of Christian marriage, mm. I think the American economy is uniquely remarkable because it, uh, what does it do best? Creates energy, often used for transportation. We build roads, we build houses, single family homes of, you know, constructed in a way that you know, a mother-in-law plan is often not a part of them. So we create this independence. So I think uh, there are other places in the world where that's totally not the, uh, most other places in the world, it's, it's not the case, right? We have figured out how to live together. You know, and a good economic punch in the jaw, which we may be experiencing here shortly, can kind of correct that, ameliorate that for a time at least, right? Even in 2007, 2008, with the sort of great recession we had, a lot of people didn't divorce because they couldn't afford to. They might have lived in separate bedrooms, but also children moved back in with parents. The same thing happened with COVID. Adult children moved back in with parents because like, Better to be together than lonely, right? So there's something just good. Maddening, of course, irritating, but overall good about parents seeing their children, grandchildren seeing their grandparents, you know, a multi-generational household. I think it's an undersold idea to Americans. Yeah, I think if I may quote you again, you wrote it beautifully when you said, Multi-generational households require inhabitants to navigate a shared culture despite normal intergenerational irritation. Solitary living requires no such thing. And then you continue. In Scandinavia, for example, single households make up to 40-45% of the total. But the gap between happy independence and sudden absolute dependence on strangers is thin. Yes. And I think that people aging alone right. can probably notice that. In particular, I mean, not everybody caught this, but you know, I'm contrasting the... Even in Ukraine, there are plenty of people who live by themselves and senior citizens by themselves. Like you realize if you don't have family, you are exceptionally vulnerable in a crisis, right? You don't have anybody to write. You have to rely on the goodwill and generosity of strangers. It exists, but it doesn't exist in spades. And it's typically never so primal as your family. And uh, when we have Decades and decades of good times, we forget it. We just, you know, you can get by on happy independence. In a crisis, vulnerability is revealed very quickly. And after we said something really good about men being the ones that need to defend, let me just say, you know, on maybe not the downside, but I was really intrigued by the research on Trip Ragna. You mentioned mm -hmm. that maybe points us to the need for something more than just men. Right. The whole shipwreck thing is... The data is very interesting. I, I had stumbled across this article, I don't know, years ago, and then I relocated it for this uh, article. People tend to look back at the, the Titanic and it's like, okay, women and children first, thinking that like somehow this tends to happen in crises like this. They're, you know, sudden, they're severe, and they're not kind of, you know, it's not, it's not about a nation, it's about, it's a boat, right? But I was surprised to learn that Women and children first is not a common order. It's not a common instinct. culture, right? There may be an instinct, mm. right? But the instinct to survive can trump women and children first, especially among men. Men are stronger. Men are more likely to survive shipwrecks, as the article points out. And what can overcome it? 
the authority of the captain, right? He may not be able to insist on it, but like he can inspire in some ways compliance to it, right? Appealing to men's masculinity, their deference towards women and children. So I just saw that and I thought, ha, ah, here's Zelensky kind of appealing to, to men saying, it's your job to protect and defend your family, your homeland. Men, rise up. And frankly, they have. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost like you, you put out that call and I mean, I don't, I, I don't think I was surprised to hear, you know, the expats are flowing in from all over Europe. You know, there's even some American men who aren't Ukrainian trying to get in the fight. That can be some other, you know, motivations. But it is just kind of interesting how the authority of the leader can be inspiring and inspire men to do what they should do, but in a pinch won't do unless somebody kind of presses them to. So we, wow, we talked about the importance of men. We now touched on the importance of leadership. There are two more, I think, to go. The importance of women, which actually you mm -hmm. write it beautifully. Civilization hinges on women. So you yeah. mentioned it before because the child needs the woman. Is that all? The most immediate thing is that men want their child to you know, be with their child's mother. That's the kind of the, the small community, the essential community. But there's also, and I think that's what really kind of is motivates most of these calls or commands. You know, I think Zelensky is out there saying, hey, we need to make sure the, that Ukraine survives and we need women to do it. I don't think he's thinking that way. Baumeister is talking as kind of an evolutionary psychologist thinking, well, if you don't have women, you ain't got nothing, right? You have mm -hmm. no future because yes, men can reproduce, but uh, they really require a woman, right? I mean, that's just yeah. how it works. So for a society to survive, you need women more than you need men, right? And like, well, of you need both, of course. Like, well, uh, over the long run, you know, historically, and Baumeister goes on about this and I don't talk about it, you know, there's Genghis Khan. He has reproduced a lot, let's say. I mean, the genetic material from that guy is found in a lot of people, right? Because men, powerful men, historically could reproduce a lot, right? Mm -hmm. And Baumeister goes on and says, you know, Estimates are that half of the men who have ever lived have never reproduced, right? But not true of women, 90% typically speaking. So, yeah, for a state to survive, you need women. I'm not kind of putting this in Ukraine in this dire shape where, you know, send the women away so they can repopulate it someday. It's not really that situation mm -hmm. at present, yeah. and hopefully it never will be. But Baumeister makes this observation that, you know, the continuity of a state really does hinge on women. Partly too, like, you know, when I talk about them, they're civilizing, they're more refined. They're, they're more interested in sort of peaceful coexistence together than men who have a little bit of more of a conquering spirit. Wow. And well, so, okay, men, leadership, women, and finally, which is also the way you close your piece, which I think could be a beautiful way to close our episode with you today is love. Why is that? Yeah. Why do we so, need that? I bring it all back to Abel, you know, this fictional character in uh, The March. He survives the war and his time in the flat steps of, of Russia and makes it back. And in this case, he's Jewish, so he, he winds up in Palestine in post-war. But, you know, it kind of in his sort of closing thoughts and assertions and context for the book, he 
you know, he's damaged by the war. Men are damaged by the war. War damages people. Killing people haunts you, even if it's a just act. I don't know if, if is it uh, Gran Torino, the mm-hmm. Clint Eastwood movie. Some people will say, oh, yeah, talk about it. Um, Clint Eastwood's character is confronted by this young man and who asks him, did you kill people in Korea? And he's like, I don't know, how many people did you kill? And he's like, you don't want to know. It is a, a stain on my soul, he says, right? Nobody's glorifying this. And so Abel feels damaged by it. But then he sort of is reminded both of like his father's quest leaving Vilnius or Vilno for a, a better life in Poland, moving south. And then that he was the product of an old man's dream, right? His father. But also then he remembers this woman named Catherine who he's met just before, or he, he, he had met her before and he sees her right near the uh, outset of the war. And they have a romantic interlude and f- kind of fall in love briefly. And then the fractionalization of, of collapsing Lviv mm. breaks it apart. Her whole family is destroyed, shipped off. And then he doesn't know what happened to her. He doesn't know if they can make it together because he's been through so much. But it's still a motivator. It's still like, how can I get back to her to see what possibility is still there? You know, the men who are duking it out in Kiev and a dozen of other cities today are thinking about their wives and children in Romania and Poland and Slovakia and wondering, how can I get back to them, right? So the primal nature of human love is in parcel why people do this kind of sacrificing. And yet it's also motivates this strong desire to conclude the conflict and get back to them. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Beautifully said, Mark. And love being in this case, not just a temporary feeling, but something that persists over time and is actually capable of motivating you to do something that goes against what your feelings, where your immediate feelings, your emotions would would demand. Well, I want to thank you very, very much for your time on this, for your peace and public discourse. Please continue to write. And as mentioned, I know you'll be back soon on our show. So I can't wait to have you back. Me too. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Please share it with your friends. Please give us a five-star rating and please donate so we can do even more.